Do you ever get that feeling like something bad just happened, but you forgot what it was? Welcome to the Poetry Magazine podcast. I'm Cindy Chuyung Oak, feeling ready to add a bit of poetry and light blue and unblue to your day. I'm chatting with Elisa Gabbert, who joins from Providence, Rhode Island. Elisa is the author of six, soon to be seven, collections of essays and poems, including Normal Distance, published by Soft School Press in 2022, and the forthcoming Any Person is the Only Self, out from FSG in 2024. A lover of surprising etymology and under-understood quotes, she wrote an essay on self-pity that debuts a new series in the July-August issue of Poetry Magazine called Hard Feelings. So let's tantrum, soothe, and wear out today as we move into and through self-pity. Elisa, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. I'm really just delighted to be here. Let's start by hearing an excerpt of your essay in the magazine on self-pity, go eat worms. Perfect. I have noticed a tendency in people when they're feeling rather bad to deliberately make themselves feel worse, to dredge up all their grievances, past and present, as if to justify bad feelings, they look for very good reasons. As Seamus Haney writes in his version of Sophocles' Philoctetes, people so deep into their own self-pity, self-pity buoys them up. It makes sense in a way, this strategy, After I feel especially awful, I usually feel a little better. It's akin to making yourself throw up as a cure for nausea. Self-pity is a strong self-cure. In a way, it is too reliable. You can get too good at self-pity. If it works when things aren't that bad, it really works when they are bad. Or, you might say, when you most deserve the pity is when it won't help. So Jeremy Liebarger, the features editor at the Poetry Foundation, just started this new series, Hard Feelings, and offered this prompt, bringing you in to write an essay about an emotion that's considered negative in some way. Why did you choose self-pity? Yes. So when Jeremy, um, who is an editor that I've worked with once before, I worked with him on a long essay about Sylvia Plath, um, when he reached out to me and told me about this series, I just instantly knew I wanted to write about self-pity. <laughs> and, um, you know, perhaps a lifelong interest, but of particular interest to me over, say, the past six to nine months, because I've been going through a very difficult period in my life. Mm-hmm. And I've always felt sort of fiercely protective of certain negative feelings and self-pity is one of them. And so, you know, when when people sort of discourage you from self-pity or tell you to look on the bright side or have perspective, it just, it kind of pisses me off. <laughs> and I feel, I feel that people, not just me, but everyone suffers and is entitled to self-pity when they suffer. And so I'm, I was interested in writing sort of a spirited defense <laughs> of an emotion that um, that is so often, you know, maligned. This idea of having to move all the way through some suffering reminds me of a line from your poem, Dramedy. When I'm suffering, I don't ask for help. I'm afraid they'll come and try to take my pain away. 
as well as something you wrote about disasters, that there's this small but undeniable pull of disaster getting further in, maybe like people wanting hot tea on a sweltering human day or something like that. Why is it that the idea that things could be worse or that things should be worse, the self-pity of an imagined future helps us in the present? I have thought about this so much. (laughs) (laughs) I always come back around to thinking it's something about control and how uncomfortable it is to not have control. And so we tend to fantasize about things, yes, sometimes being much better, but also being much worse because that's the sort of release from the idea of, oh, I, I might have to fix this horrible situation. I've always been tempted there to think about, oh, well, what, what if things were even more just absolutely disastrous? Right, the lack of control leads to a need for agency and the fantasizing one way or another creates that sense. And maybe there's a feeling that if you go all the way to through, then there's some ending, there's some way that it can't get any worse than that. And then it can only get better. Right. And I think that's like the impulse behind, you know, when when people say, like, I want to kill myself almost rhetorically, Mm -hmm. it's not necessarily ironic or sarcastic, even. It's more just like giving voice to an impulse of like, I want to have control over my own demise. Even if you don't actually want to die at all, like, you know, like if you fear death and you fear pain, you could still find yourself saying that just because it's this like ultimate, I am grabbing control of my destiny kind of fantasy. Mm -hmm. I'm so interested in the sort of hyperbole of self-pity that, you know, it, it becomes more interesting when it's just completely over the top when there's just a too muchness about it because there's not really an appropriate amount of self-pity in a way. (laughs) Like It's always considered too much. And so why not too much, too much? Yeah, I was once in a bookshop cafe and this woman told a very endearing story about her younger brother, about when they were children and their family was driving on the Long Island Expressway and he was young and he said, no one understands me. No one to LEI understands me. (laughs) And... I associate self-pity with youth in that way. There's a kind of cuteness because it's like this complicated emotion of, uh, you know, feeling unfairly misunderstood, not only by my family, but by the highway. (laughs) I'm curious if you feel if you associate it with childhood at all in that way. Absolutely. I think, you know, children are sort of the only um, entities (laughs) that we sort of allow to indulge and really even luxuriate in self-pity to throw tantrums like I don't have children but you know many of my friends do and the more enlightened among them will say like oh you really can't like punish your children for throwing a tantrum because they don't have control over their emotions they just don't really know what they're doing Mm. you know again we come back to control like In a way, it's unfortunate that as adults, we do have control because we don't want it all the time. Like we would rather just throw a tantrum. And I feel very much like I'm returning to my childhood self and regressing when I indulge in self-pity. But I do it because it it works. It helps. It makes me feel better. It's soothing. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, I'm sorry to hear that it's been a difficult several months. I think that self-pity does seem like a hard feeling that is in relationship with maybe even harder feelings, maybe larger feelings. Yes. It's one of those, (sighs) I keep coming back to control. It's 
a reaction to circumstances which are out of our control. But I think that we do have control to some extent over our emotions. Mm -hmm. We can kind of choose like what room we want to be in, what mood we want to be in. And we can sort of choose, I'm going to indulge in self-pity tonight. Like it's having, um, you know, a spa night of self-care, except the self-care is pity. Mm. <laughs> to me, that is a way to wrestle control from my circumstances. I find that crying, for example, absolutely makes me feel better. Um, I must release endorphins or something. <laughs> yeah. And also, why should it be an indulgence, right? It's just a choice. It doesn't, there's nothing wrong. There's nothing you're taking away. It doesn't have to be this sort of treat as well, I think. Um, well, you know, sometimes people do feel you're taking something away from them, like you are inflicting your <laughs> your suffering in my personal space by feeling pity around me. Mm. It is sort of a way of like flexing and flailing and making your own space a little bigger. So of course, one has to be aware and responsible about it. But that's part of why it makes you feel better, right? Let's hear the end of the essay on self-pity, go eat worms. Those who despise self-pity always offer perspective. In his essay, Why Bother?, Jonathan Franzen writes, how ridiculous the self-pity of the writer in the late 20th century can seem in light of, say, Herman Melville's life. But why should the idea that Herman Melville suffered make us feel better? I must admit, it often does. I'll read any number of descriptions of Melville's abject career failures. Here's another via Stephen Marsh. His fate was like the sick joke of some cruel god. But why should it? Isn't that a cruelty on our part? Melville didn't sacrifice happiness to save us. And why should the idea that things could be worse help? Things could be worse may be one of those lies that allows us to live, obscuring the truer truth things will be worse. You may not have the worst life possible, but your own specific life will contain more suffering than it does now. And you're the one who will have to feel it. So I wanted to ask also about kind of growing up on the internet. You have written poems and essays that appeared first on blogs or even had a blog poem sort of series. And I would just imagine that there were different pressures or norms being acknowledged or internalized online that might connect to self-pity or deny self-pity. What was it like when you were first starting to blog or putting your poems on the internet and what kinds of writing were you thinking through? Oh, it was so different then. Um, it was around, you know, 2005, 2006, when I first started writing a blog. The internet was younger. Of course, I was younger too. It felt incredibly free at the time. You know, I had a very small <laughs> to non-existent audience at the time. <laughs> and so it was just purely fun for me. I was just like playing around. You know, I I still really love writing, <laughs> um, but that that was a way for me to just to practice 
the love of writing with absolutely no pressure, no stakes. Mm. I was just doing it for the pleasure of it, for nothing else. And, you know, if, if it turned out people like to read it, you know, that was just a nice little bonus for me. Um, but yeah, it felt very free, but also it was a weird time in this kind of indie alt lit era. <laughs> it was quite misogynist. Mm. I have occasionally revisited um, some of the blogs that were popular during that time and are just trying to tell people like you would not believe how different it was just 10 or 15 years ago. Like spaces were very male dominated and there was a lot of aggression and exclusion and really hostility towards just being a feminist that I feel like that has changed radically in the past 10 or 15 years. Do you feel like you witnessed that happening slowly, the change, or was it only looking back that you can see how much things have shifted? It's really only looking back. I think, you know, over the past five years, there was just this massive reckoning happening everywhere, you know, in, <laughs> in culture at large, um, but also on the internet. And that just hadn't really happened yet when I first started blogging. And, you know, I think partly because I I didn't have like a reputation to protect or, <laughs> or anything like that, mm-hmm. like I could afford to sort of be ballsy and tell people off um, and like make a case for feminism. Oh, yes. And I'm sort of like proud of my younger self for <laughs> for doing that. But yeah, it was mostly just total pure play and freedom. I feel like lucky that I stumbled into that because I got so much good writing practice in without immediately trying to publish everything in sort of prestigious venues. And I met a lot of fellow writers and editors that I ended up working with down the line. And it was just really good for me. I I think that kind of low stakes work is really, really important for writerly development. Yeah, it's also interesting how stakes change that the fact that it felt low stakes maybe it would be very different now to be that age now on the internet yeah I think young people now know a lot more than I did Mm -hmm. (laughs) there's a lot more like information available so kids in their 20s just out of college I didn't know anything now I meet kids who are like full-on socialists they're like just totally empowered amazing like I I did not know I was not that informed um when I got an MFA I had no idea how to look for funding like I just went to the place that accepted me mm-hmm. <laughs> and went into debt which I right. recently finally paid off so that's great oh, congratulations <laughs> thank you thank you yeah I, th- I just I think kids are a lot more kids you know that's that's very condescending of me (laughs) young adults younger adults than me are just more informed now and like they sort of know what's up because there has been you know there has been this sort of very public reckoning there's a poem that deals with self-pity so well in normal distance your latest poetry collection desiderata which broadly means i think things wanted Let's hear an excerpt from it because I think it connects to today's conversation and to a broader look at self-pity. Do you ever get that feeling like something bad just happened, but you forgot what it was? I want to say something negative about it. I want to say something, but nothing comes to mind that's not a cliche or a lie. I want someone to apologize to me but not a specific person and not for a specific thing. 
I want to go to sleep and wake up and not be a terrible person. I want to donate my personality to science. I don't particularly want to suffer and then die in a war. I don't want to die. I just want to be dead. I wish my mind could be freed from this rickety carcass. I wish war didn't have such noble connotations. I don't understand what's so great about eclipses. We don't want for signs of doom. I'll go gentle into that good night if I fucking want to. I want nothing so much as a real operatic cry, like on stage. I wish at the end of each day, the judges would tell me I'm safe. I never close the windows on planes. People who close the windows on planes, I guess you don't want to feel melancholy and golden and sublime. I always wanted dramatic, deep set eyes and a widow's peak. I want a nightgown to wear as I walk into the sea. I don't want to feel good. I want to feel sad. Happiness lately feels mostly beside the point. It's not that I think I deserve punishment, just weird fleeting wishes for tragedy. It's so interesting to think about self-pity as a way of thinking of more suffering because I think sometimes I think of self-pity as a way to sort of logic my way out of a feeling and think it should have been better. Why is this so bad? Like when my grandmother died as I was driving cross country early in the year and I was alone driving and I was very upset but I had the self-pitying way of grieving because I felt very self-righteous and angry that she had died of COVID because she had been locked up for so long. She was in this nursing home in Korea, so she was locked up in 2019. So I had this self-pity and it was, you know, a way to focus this grief, but it was more of this idea of like, well, it should have been better. And your essay talks some more about the kind of way things could be worse in other people's lives, in our future lives, and the soothing of that. I'm so sorry about your grandmother, I just wanted to say. Yeah, um, yeah I think we want things to be either better or worse. It's like, it's reality that is so intolerable. Because reality doesn't live up to either our best hopes or our worst fears. <laughs> it's just always disappointing you know <laughs> I feel this so much more acutely now that I'm in my 40s you know the the whole idea of the midlife crisis which I, I used to think sounded very quaint it sounded like something from like romantic comedy movies from right. the 80s <laughs> like that's the what people, yes that's what people's dads go through <laughs> when, when, they're, when they're divorcing um but now now I feel the force. Oh, crisis. That's, that's what it is. Mm -hmm. It's a crisis of realizing the illusion of freedom in your youth. It's no, it's no longer a viable illusion. <laughs> uh, the hallway is a lot shorter. So that, that instinct of self-pity, it's you, you do feel bad that things aren't better, but the wishing for, for something worse is still a way to fantasize about your life being different because the way your life is, is a kind of trap. So is that realization and is that shift and feeling of crisis 
about mortality or is it something more complicated about the present moment and, and its disappointments? I think it is at base about mortality. And I don't know if you've ever read <laughs> The Denial of Death by Ernest Becker. I really love Freudian psychoanalytic writing. I'm, I've never had a psychotherapist, but I just, I love like the language and just the sort of ridiculousness of it. <laughs> it's hyperbolic. And yeah, Ernest Becker is the sort of post-Freudian thinker who wrote this book in the 70s that was quite influential. And then people just kind of stopped reading it and talking about it as far as I can tell. But I read it last year and it absolutely blew my mind. It's The thesis is very simple. It's just sort of like, oh yeah, basically everything we do as humans is in service of the denial of death. Like we just can't handle the idea that we're going to become warm food. And that's why we have religion. And that's why we have writing careers. <laughs> and kids and so forth. And it's not like, it sounds cynical, but it's actually really beautiful. It's just like a fascinating book, even though it just keeps making that same point over and over for 300 pages or whatever. Like, <laughs> like we got it. We got it in the title. <laughs> but I loved it. Yeah. <laughs> I like couldn't get enough. Um, but yeah, ever since I read it, I do always come back to, yeah, that's that's probably about the fear of death. Yeah. And I, I tend to think even a lot of climate anxiety, climate grief is sort of the way it makes our own deaths feel even more death-like. There's this over-death of, oh, wow, not only am I personally going to die and go away and be forgotten, maybe I won't even be in a library in 200 years because maybe all the libraries will be underwater. Right. Um, that's just like this additional existential insult you know, obviously, I, I care about the planet for its own <laughs> and its own right. <laughs> no, I think it's very true that there's a mass death drive that's very scary. I mean, similar yeah. to mass shootings and the way that changes grief and meaning. Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, a lot of the things we sort of participate in um, that are larger than us feel like a bit of a way out of death and imagining that we won't continue on forever, which, you know, of course, it, one way or another, we're not going to continue forever. Like, you know, the sun will explode, but we, we'd like it to be more forever than it now seems like it's going to be. I think that you would really like analysis if it ever <laughs> becomes possible, because I can confirm as someone who also was very interested in analysis and then I had the opportunity to do it because my insurance covered, oh. uh, you know, one session a day. And so I had the opportunity to do it. And it was definitely true that people who are intellectually interested by it also are very emotionally engaged by it, that there's a connection uh, for the process. Yeah, I, th I think it would be fascinating. <laughs> I only just learned recently and what you just said kind of verbally confirmed it, that you have to go like at least three or four times a week or it doesn't yes. count. <laughs> <laughs> that just my jaw dropped. I have a friend who's um, who's doing that now. And I just, I called her so she could tell me all about it. But I was just like, I don't understand how you have time <laughs> for that, <laughs> for self-knowledge. Yeah, it's, it's very difficult. <laughs> I Part of mine was on Zoom, which is funny, or on Doxy or whatever. And so what we would do, because she was very classical, like it was couch, I never looked at her. Oh, wow. And so we would on Zoom, I would set up the computer to be facing the back of my head and we would just <gasps> continue this 
hilarious. That's amazing. Set up. I'm jealous. Honestly, I'm jealous. Yeah. I'm going to like quit my job and just. <laughs> I know. It is very time consuming. I was in grad school, but I think that if it ever happens that it becomes possible logistically, I think that you would find it really interesting. Maybe I'll apply for a grant. Just <laughs> Yes. It's, for, it's all research. Yeah, I'll just I'll I'll come up with a book proposal about analysis and this will be this will be how I get to do it. I also find it really charming how often you've written about enemies. <laughs> the word enemy coming up in multiple books. I actually think many poets you love have done the same because June Jordan has, Louise Glick has, Sylvia Plath has. Oh, that June Jordan poem about enemies is so Yes, good. <laughs> it's lovely. Elisa writes about it very beautifully in The Times. Um, so you have talked about enemies in a, in a serious way, like analyzing our need to use that concept of the other to affirm an idea of the self and a way to project outward. But you also use the term to sometimes talk about very hilarious dynamics, like the more petty side of things, <laughs> uh, which I love. Is there a relationship to your writing with the imagining of like the more kind of trivial foes? You know, it's it's funny that you say like, oh, I can be funny about it too. I, I feel like when I'm writing nonfiction about, you know, like the idea of inventing an enemy so that you can, you know, define yourself in contrast because humans need war to create meaning, you know, I sort of take that very seriously. But then when I enter the space of a poem, I can be much more sort of irreverent. And this is why I can never completely give up writing, writing poems, even though Poetry. <laughs> I go like, I often go a very long time without writing a poem. I haven't written a poem in a long time. But the reason I return to them is because it is, you know, kind of like blogging, a sort of freeing space where you don't always have to tell the truth. And you don't have to be like fully committed to the things you say because lines are more like conjectures. <laughs> um, they're not facts. That is so true. Yeah, words can also mean different things in a poem. They can be separated from their connotations, whereas I definitely feel a pressure when I write prose. Is this sentence true and is the opposite not true, which you I would never think in a poem? Yeah, I, I feel the exact same way. And the poem, I feel, is almost like this theatrical space where... I'm, I'm delivering this sort of monologue. And even if I'm not thinking of it consciously of like, oh, this is the speaker, like I'm writing a college essay. <laughs> like there is, this, there's a speaker, there's a persona. It's like extra me or some version of me that, you know, I don't have to be tomorrow, which, you know, for better or worse, because I, I don't think readers always understand that. <laughs> I've, I have like seen, you know, writing online where somebody was attributing a thought and a poem to me, the author, which is appalling. Mm. But yeah, you, that's why you should never read anything about <laughs> people write about your work. I think it's interesting that especially over time, there would be it would be a quote like I mean, this happens so often with poets. A quote will get connected to a writer and the context that it's in or maybe the irony or the kind of persona that it came from is totally erased and it's just your name. Yes. Yeah. So you know that I'm fascinated by that, like quotes that are taken out of Frost. Yeah. Frost. Yes. Um, <laughs> the Frost lines are 
so often taken out of context. And now he has this sort of meta reputation as a poet who's always taken out of context to the point that I'm like, well, no, yeah, actually, he did mean some of that stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Right. We went too far the other way. Yeah. Um, Joan Didion also is always sort of misquoted and her lines often mean nothing what they actually mean when you see them in the paragraph they came from, you know, the way they're bandied about. I'm sorry, what, what was the actual question? <laughs> <laughs> Thinking about your enemies. <laughs> yes, enemies. It's funny, that feels like almost a, a relic of sort of the younger poet me, my younger writer persona, where I could be a little bit more adversarial, I feel, than I can be now, publicly adversarial and just mm. saucy and, you know... I honestly kind of hate it that mm. I I feel now as like a more like quote unquote public figure. I just, I have to be on best behavior. What is it that you feel afraid of? It's not that I'm afraid. It's that, I mean, I, I would judge somebody of my, again, I, ha- I feel like I have to use quote marks around these words, my stature. <laughs> I don't know that I have all that much stature, but still, I, <laughs> other people seem to think I do. So like I would judge somebody of my stature if I were younger and less established or just older and less established. If, you know, they didn't sort of exercise some control over the degree of the negativity they put into the world, the valence of the negativity, like... It's very easy when you have a bigger audience to be misunderstood. And that's ultimately my fault. If I'm, you know, I can't control how much people understand me all the time. But if I know something will get misread, it's better not to say it. Mm -hmm. I don't want to risk, you know, hurting somebody's feelings. (laughs) Like I don't want to hurt people. And it just, it, it wasn't that risky to sort of, you know, put, negative opinions out into the world at a like a different stage of my career and like I miss the sort of freedom of that like I was just chatting in a party and not paying that much attention to who was listening or who might overhear like I don't think it's right anymore it's not Mm. it's not right if like the number of people that I could potentially hurt or offend is like it's a different scale exponentially higher exactly exactly it's it's a question of scale I think I'm still I'm still often very offensive in private. (laughs) We have this new segment called Question into the Void, where poets ask questions not knowing who might answer them, hence the void. In the French exit, you have the line, I want that void in me. Today, we find ourselves in the void that C.M. Burroughs friend of the magazine and podcast, as well as of my heart, sent off into the void and now shares with you. So we're going to hear her question. Hi, my name is C.M. Burroughs. I've been thinking a lot about urgency lately, particularly in connection with new writing projects and how how one discovers what's urgent. And... So my question into the void is, what is your process for discovering new important obsessions or urgencies for your writing? Oh, I love that. Thank you for that question. 
It feels so relevant to my thinking recently because I am between projects. I'm coming to the end of sort of a run of projects that I had planned out sort of for years, like first this, then that, then that. And I felt a lot of urgency to complete them. There was some level of just personal obsession. I don't know why, but I got it in my head that like seven books, even even short minor books would be my body of work. And if I'm not able to write or publish anything else after seven books, that's still a body of work. (laughs) And if I die, like people would still feel like, oh, she had a whole body of work. And because I just... I'm finishing, you know, just kind of final touch edits on that on that seventh book now. I have this feeling of great openness, this chasm opening up before me where I don't think I immediately have to start on anything, um, which is a sort of dizzying amount of freedom. And it's forced me to ask this question, like, what do I want to work on next? It could be anything. I think, as I mentioned earlier, the thing that kicked off this whole self-pity discussion was going through a difficult time, not having as much available time or energy to write as I used to. I want to make sure it's really worth it. You know, I want to I want to devote my my writing time and even my reading time, which always serves my writing to something that I truly am like obsessed with and driven to devote that small amount of available energy to. And so it's it's been a very interesting question. And I, I find that I often am drawn to a form before I'm drawn to a subject. And I recently read a book that I absolutely loved. It was an architecture book called The Built, The Unbuilt, and The Unbuiltable by Robert Harbison. And I don't know if you ever hang out in the architecture section of bookstores, but... I love architecture books. Yes. <laughs> so it's got pictures on like every page right so it's basically like a long photo essay Incredible. and it gave me this like the most just delicious feeling of like oh it's like I'm reading a super intellectual picture book for adults and like I love architectural terminology I love architectural theory again I was one of those books that I just like didn't want to end I just loved it so much and Like every now and then, you know, less than 10 times in my life, I've had an experience reading a book where I thought like, oh, I want to write a book like that. And I'm not going to become an architectural (laughs) theorist, but I do the idea of the photos. Yes, I want to. And I've had photos in some of my essay collections in the past. So not totally foreign to me, but yeah, I want to write a long photo essay type book with like filled with pictures, thinking about sort of visual things. And I want those pictures to, you know, not just be, say, like paintings or an artist's photograph where it's just it's one thing it refers to itself. I want it to be photos of things that are actually out in the world, because what this book did was it sent me down a billion rabbit holes. Right. Because I would see a picture of some building or some fresco. Right. And I, you were creating this other text of other research. Yes, it did. I kept going to Google to find like more images of the same thing from different angles, or just to learn more about these places and these objects and these like gardens and ruins that he was writing about. So yeah, I, I love that that kind of work that work that is like, both just absolutely addictive and enveloping, but also keeps sending you outside of it and then coming back. 
that's sort of how I have tended to find my drive to work on a book link project since it is so much work is to have this idea of an end form and mind and know like, Ooh, like this is, this is like sort of a tradition I want to be part of. This is a form I want to engage with. And I want to figure out how I can adjust my thinking to fit that kind of book. The container offers a way to think and find the subject, I think, in some ways. And I think you've always been interested in space and memory. Mm-hmm. And in, in a way that reminds me of how in The Poetics of Space by Gaston Bachelard, not sure about the pronunciation, writes about how the house cannot be inert or governed by geometry once it has been experienced and lived in. Mm-hmm. And it seems like your work is interested only in, in those spaces that have been experienced and lived in, right, that have some kind of meaning. Um, there's an essay with a lot of Bachelard Poetics of Space material in my next book. So you'll be very excited. Oh, great. Yeah. <laughs> That's perfect. Yeah, I'm. it's very ambitious of you to have this seven book idea because what you described about having that body of work and, you know, if you die, it's there. That's literally how I feel about one book. I feel like, oh, I can retire. <laughs> like, I, you know, I'm good. <laughs> I did it. And here you are, times seven, onto the eighth. <laughs> But I'm also curious about how boredom plays into this space that you're in where anything could happen and a book can lead you to a form and uh, the form can lead you to the subject. Boredom does seem to come up sometimes. Uh, You you pointed out that in Virginia Woolf's work, there's this pattern of boredom's phantom, the specter of it. And you have similarly thought about boredom a lot. The, The last page of The Self is Unstable, your book, has that memorable moment. I told a student that desire comes from boredom, but I seek out desire. So why do I fear boredom? So is there a connection for you between boredom and desire as you swing between this kind of like having a goal and going to it and writing these books versus being in that space of wanting something and moving through uh, what that might look like, the questions? I have always come back to boredom as just sort of a pet subject and a pet feeling like it is another one of those hard feelings that I've always liked spending time thinking about. I do think that again, as I've aged, my relationship to it has, has really changed to the point that I don't feel like I really get bored anymore. It doesn't feel like boredom the same way it did Mm -hmm. when I was young and time just felt like it was stretching out and dilating and in this horrible way. I hated it. It felt like pain to me, (laughs) which just seems laughable to me now because what, what I would then call boredom, I would now call a kind of restless desperation, which is that something is wasting my time. Like, Mm. oh God, my time feels so much more precious and limited now. And this is not how I want to be spending it. Yes. And so it's it's more crushing, you know, it's like, oh God, oh God, I have to get out of this. And the nice thing about being an adult and, you know, a sort of free country. It's like most of the time, if something is giving me that feeling, I, I can get out of it. You know, I, I try to <laughs> arrange my life so that I don't end up in situations where I'm going to feel desperately restless and panicky about wasted time. But I, yeah, I, I mean, I do think any, any negative feeling of that sort, you know, can be can be productive like inescapable feelings can be productive it's it's like 
it's harder to get bored, you know, as they say, like when you have your phone with you or whatever. Although I, th- I get just, if I, the most bored I ever am, honestly, is looking at my phone. I find my phone very boring. <laughs> but yeah, I, I think any of those like uncomfortable situations that you're forced to be in, whether it's boredom or panic can, you know, can be productive. I think that the way that they're generative also can change. And it sounds like the definition has shifted for you as well. I think boredom has so much to do with setting because I would never describe being bored when I'm alone. It's only a word I use to talk about being in this social society and having some gripe with it. Mm. There's this Korean phrase that is like, ibishimshimada or kungumada is like the mouth is bored or the mouth is kind of wondering something and it's like when you want to eat but out of boredom oh yeah (laughs) and I feel like maybe there's a poetry equivalent too, like a boredom that leads to like the mouth you know the pleasure of speech the taste of words or something like that yeah yeah I I, I'm interested in those urges that are like all form and no content you know where you're like oh I want to read but I don't want to read any of the books that are available yes (laughs) I want to write but I have absolutely nothing to say (laughs) Oh, speaking of the books that are available, I did a research trip this weekend. I noticed that in your interviews, constantly people are bringing up Twitter on your recent tweets, which I felt like was research I'm not as suitable to do. I don't know the language. So I went to the central branch of the Denver Public Library, <gasps> which you've written about <laughs> many times as sort of this special home of books for you when you were living here, including in particular the uncurated, the anti-curation books in the returned, but not yet shelved books, the recently returned Purgatory. Yes. And I'd love to read to you some of the titles I saw. I went with my partner in case any give you ideas, (laughs) make you a little nostalgic. Okay. Constructing Kitchen Cabinets. Brave Intuitive Painting. We Are the Middle of Forever. Stamped Metal Jewelry. Go Back to Where You Came From. Bruce Lee, (laughs) coaching youth soccer. It's what's inside the lines that counts. (laughs) Toronto, have I told you this already? Good math, a geek's guide to the beauty of numbers, logic, and computation. Rock legends at Rockfield and Good Catch, a book about fish. (laughs) I love it. I, I love trying to figure out which, if any, of the books were checked out by the same (laughs) patron. Yes. (laughs) Like, Like what were the groupies? Yes. Yeah. I mean, I could see somebody getting into, you know, metalwork and cabinet making at the same time. Yeah, they're (laughs) out and about. Any kind of just random selection of stuff I've always loved. Like, I used to play this game with my brother in the backseat of the car. We had like a toy catalog or something. You know, we would open it to a spread and we would have to pick which thing on that spread we wanted most. Mm. And it wasn't like the whole catalog, right? It was just what was on that page or those two pages, Mm. which is like somehow made it more fun and game-like. And that's how I feel about the recently returned books. It's like this game-like slice of the library. And it's, yeah, it's always stuff that I, I would never like go check out the the hobby area, the library, if that's even a thing. I don't know the Dewey Dismal system that well. But um, yeah, but I have picked up books like that, like random, you know, craft books and cookbooks and stuff that I never would have sought out on my own. Yeah, it's nice to have that kind of encouragement or, or the randomness. I love that you read in dreams. 
And I also read whole books and dreams. And I feel like that was the night I, I, I created a book and I read it. Have you had any words come to you in dreams lately or recent dreams that have seemed particularly interesting? Ooh, let me think. Um, I dreamed that I survived a shipwreck and I was like, I had somehow had the knowledge in this dream that, you know, like the way to survive a shipwreck is just like, I mean, this, I guess this seems very, like very basic <laughs> drowning knowledge, <laughs> but it's obviously to hold your breath for as long as you can and just like, try to stay still until you can see light and then swim toward the light. Mm. So in this dream, I like was tumbling and tumbling and tumbling. And then I like finally could see the light on the surface of the water and I swam towards the light. And I, t I like, I'm not big on like, Oh God, dreams mean this or whatever. But I was absolutely like, Oh, I'm like emerging from this period of, of great difficulty. And <laughs> like right. this sort of endless, transition where I was just sort of between states and I didn't have like a permanent place to live and I felt very unsettled but the funny thing is that so it wasn't reading but it was very linguistic in the dream I thought like swim toward the light like I, that was the advice that I had to follow <laughs> so it was like I was giving myself this little this little adage or aphorism yeah to, an aphorism yeah to take away <laughs> when I woke up how loving yeah it was so sweet and Maybe it also helps to make all the unpacking feel a bit more meaningful because you're swimming through all your books and all your things. It's, uh, yeah, yeah. We just we've been using our living room space because our couch hasn't been shipped yet. It's just like this chaos zone repository of all of our boxes, and we're like slowly getting through them. And it was so weird. It, it seemed like it, we were making no dent in the boxes, and then there was like one box where all of a sudden just the room opened up. And like it didn't seem that bad anymore. It's like, that's the moment when you see the light. <laughs> I think that's how it is. Uh, it only takes that one box and it only took the one book and its photographs and you churn and it's the water has changed or, yeah, suddenly you're on different ground. Yes. Yeah. Thank you so much, Elisa. This was so lovely. Thank you. Thank you so much for spending such, you know, time with my work. It's just, it's an honor. beside the point. It's not that I think I deserve punishment, just weird fleeting wishes for tragedy. I don't want people to get what they deserve. What's it called when you want bad things to happen? Life is usually good, bad, good, bad. So when things are good, it's like, well, this isn't going to last. When things are bad, you can enjoy yourself. When things are bad, do you ever secretly wish for them to get worse? Like I wanted it to be the same, but more so. I want to feel more of what I'm already feeling. Maybe it's a subconscious wish. Part of me never wants it to end. A plush thanks to Elisa Gabbert. Elisa is the author of six collections of poetry and essays, including her most recent poetry collection, Normal Distance, published by Soft School Press in 2022, and her newest essay collection, The Unreality of Memory, published by FSG in 2020. You can read her essay on self-pity, Go Eat Worms, in the July-August 2023 issue of Poetry, in print and online. 
If you're not yet a subscriber to the magazine, there's a special rate for podcast listeners. For a limited time, you can get a full year of the magazine for $20. 10 book-length issues for just $20. Visit poetrymagazine.org slash podcast offer to subscribe. Poetrymagazine.org slash podcast offer. The show is produced by Rachel James. The music in this episode came from Reservoir, Alabaster de Plume, John McCowan, Rob Mazurik, and Irreversible Entanglements. Until next time, with a shout out to all the breaks and voids, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.